Tonight we're going to study Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's just take a minute and review what we've had so far. You remember that in um, Romans 1, 18 to chapter 8, 39, Paul deals with two things, man's ruin, God's remedy. Man's ruin is found in Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20. God's remedy is found in Romans 3, 21 to Romans 8, 39. What is the first word in Romans 3, 21? But now, but now, that's the watershed in the first part of the epistle to Romans. That's the watershed in the first eight chapters. And up to that point, man's ruin. Beyond that point, God's remedy. Now God's remedy is in three stages or three tenses of salvation. Justification, past tense salvation, sanctification, present tense salvation, and glorification, future tense salvation. Now we're on justification. Romans 3.21 to Romans 5.21. In these chapters, Romans 3.21 to 5.21, Paul does four things. First, states the facts of justification. Romans 3, 21 to 31. We studied that already. Then he raises three questions after stating the facts. One, how does this method of saving justifying men by faith alone agree with the Old Testament? He answers that in Romans 4. Second, how certain and sure is it? He answers that in Romans 5, 1 to 11. And how wide is it? He answers that in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Now tonight we're coming to Romans chapter 4. Last three weeks we dealt with Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31. And remember there were three things in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31. First of all, the character of justification. Romans 3, 21, 22, and 23. Number two, the four causes of justification. Romans 3, 24, 25, and 26. Now third, and I'm just going to touch on it, the consequences of this method of justifying men. Romans chapter 3, 27 to 31. Now let's just read this and comment it briefly. Romans 3, 27 to 31. What are the consequences? What are the results of this method of justification? What method? The method of justification by faith apart from any works. What's the result? Well, number one, all boasting is excluded. Romans 3, 27, 28. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's a great verse. Romans 3, 27. We, we, we conclude the man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now I want you to listen carefully here and maybe look up. <clears throat> I turned on a radio preacher about four or five weeks ago, and he said he's here in town, belongs to a denomination, that believes in baptismal regeneration. And he said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that a man is justified by faith alone. And the answer to that is, no, it doesn't say that. But nowhere 
does the word Trinity show up, but we believe in the Trinity. Nowhere does gambling, is the word gambling used. We don't believe in gambling. Nowhere is the word race used. But that doesn't mean the Bible approves of race, see. The word may not be used, but the idea is. Now, Romans chapter 3, 27 comes as close to it as it could possibly come. It says, where's boasting? It's verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from, without means apart from the deeds of the law. We conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous, apart from, apart from what? Whatever you want to put in there. Apart from baptism. Apart from circumcision. Apart from keeping the Ten Commandments. Apart from walking forward to an altar. See? A man can be saved in his bed or underneath a bridge. Apart from any works or any religious rites. A man is saved by faith alone. And since a man is saved by faith alone, that means God does everything, and therefore, boasting is excluded. There'll be no boasting in heaven. No boasting in heaven. God has so ordained it that anybody that gets into heaven is going to get there absolutely by God's sovereign grace. And there'll be no boasting in heaven. You know, I have, every once in a while, I think I mentioned this on a radio broadcast, Somebody says to me, I haven't lived a very good Christian life. Therefore, I, I, I'm just going to slip into heaven. Matter of fact, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to take the back seat in heaven. You ever heard anybody say that? I, my friend, if you got what you deserve and I got what I deserve, I'd get the front seat in hell. See, not the back seat in heaven. Nobody's going to get any, no seat in arrangement in heaven. No seat in arrangement in heaven. Nobody's going to deserve a closer seat than anybody else because we're all saved by faith alone, entirely by God's sovereign grace, apart from any works. Does works enter in? Yes, it enters in to demonstrating whether it's real or not. See, the old Protestant reformer said, men are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That is, saving faith has within it the germ, the seed, of good works. And if there's not any good works, then I may have reason to doubt whether I'm genuinely saved. That means to say if a man is saved and he keeps on the same kind of life and the same vocabulary and the same dirty stories and the same kind of thought pattern, then he ought to examine himself whether what he did was simply superficial. So that doesn't mean that a man cannot get saved and fall back into sin. Maybe curse or drink. I don't mean to say that. David committed adultery after he got saved. Yes, a man can sin. What's important is, how does he look upon that sin when he gets finished? See, with David, when he committed that sin, why, he had a conscience that tortured him all the time until he got right with God. And when he was confronted with his sin, he said, absolutely, I am the person. God is absolutely right. I'm wrong, see, at a right 
attitude toward God. That's what's critical when it comes to the matter of sin, to ideal with it as a Christian. So all boasting is excluded. What's the second thing? Well, in Romans <coughs> chapter 3, 29 and 30, the second thing is that this method of saving, justifying men is exclusive. This method is exclusive. There's no other way. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it's one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. What is the point Paul is making? The point Paul is making is that God has but one way of saving men, and that's through faith. If there were two ways, now are you listening? If there are two ways of saving men, says Paul, that would mean that there are two gods. He forced the Jew, who was a monotheist, to make a decision. Either two ways of saving men, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile, and that means two gods, or else one god, and there's but one god, then that one god has but one way of saving men. And since Paul has already proven salvation by faith, that excludes salvation by works. Exclusive. Exclusive. The only way God saves men is he saves them by grace through faith. Every once in a while, I pick up this criticism that dispensationalism teaches two ways of salvation. When I landed on the campus of Dallas Theological Seminary back in the late 40s, Dr. Chaper was fighting that battle that was leveled against dispensationalism. And since I've been in this city, that's been charged against dispensationalism. That dispensationalism, one, teaches two ways of salvation, and number two, tells us that since we're not under the law, then we can go out sin like we want to sin. Both of those are absolutely false. I am a dispensationalist. But may I say at the same time, God has always but one way of salvation. It's always by God's grace. It's always on the ground of the blood of Christ. And with those who have rational faculties, it's always through faith in the Lord, never any other way. What about an infant? Infants in heaven? Yes. Yes. Do I believe that infants are saved? Yes, I do. Why? Because they're innocent? No, no. No, they're contaminated by the Adamic sin. They were sinners at birth. Well, how then are they in heaven? Because God has the right to apply the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ to any who do not possess rational faculties, whether they're infants or they are insane. God has the right, I believe, he reserves the right to, to apply the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet uh, are able to exercise rational faculties and trust in Christ. Why do you believe that? Well, for several reasons. For one reason is that when David's little baby died, that infant baby, David said, I know that he shall not come to me, 
but I shall go to him. I shall go to him. Now, that doesn't mean I'll go to him in the grave and occupy the same six feet. He didn't mean that. He meant I will go to him. He's not going to come back to me as a human being, able to think and will and choose. But I will go to him as a person, and he is a person, to engage in interpersonal relationship. I will go to him and see him again. Where did David go? David went to heaven. And that's where that infant was, in the presence of God. Why did that baby go there? Because the baby was innocent? No, no. Because God reserves the right to apply the merits of the blood of Jesus to any of those who do not possess rational faculties. Do you know that the old, the old elder Calvinists always believed that there would be more in heaven than there would be in hell? See, the word hell comes from the word whole, and whole is something small. And men like Calvin and Charles Hodge and Shedd believe that there'd be more in heaven than there would be in hell. Why? Well, because up until the 19th century, nine-tenths of the people born in this world never reached adulthood. Nine-tenths of the people died when they were small, infants. And if we believe, as I do, that infants will enter heaven on the ground of the blood of Christ, then more will be in heaven than will be in hell. I don't take the dark view that, and I don't think that's what that verse means. You there where be the finder. He was talking about his own present ministry at that time. I believe there will be more in heaven than there will be in hell, and that's been the faith of the church all through the ages. And I believe that God has the right, he reserves the right, to apply the merit of the blood of Jesus to those who are not of rational faculty. What about the state of the heathen? While we're on it, let's go ahead and look at the other one, since we're not going to get through Romans 4 by 10.30 tonight. <laughs> but I'm dealing with a, a couple of questions that people raise. What about the state of the heathen? Well, I've already dealt with that Romans 1, 18-32. They are lost. They are without excuse, see? But as the old elder theologians and primarily Calvinistic theologians were much better than the ones that are running around uh, today and especially the ones in Memphis today. They had a clear concept of these things. Uh, they said that, uh, William G.T. Shedd said, that where there was the habit, the habit of repentance, the habit of repentance, as it was with Naaman, as it was with Melchizedek, who was born outside the line of Israel, where there's a true heart of repentance toward God and a casting of the soul upon God, an acknowledgement that I am a sinner and, and deserve nothing but eternal damnation, and I cast myself upon God to save me as a sinner that God has the right to apply the merit of the blood of Jesus. Now, the question is, are there any such pagans or heathens? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that that puts everybody on the same plane. God treats everybody equitably. And God saves everybody 
but one way. How is that one way? By his grace, on the ground of the blood of Christ, and through faith in the Lord. So, number one, boasting is excluded. Number two, this method is exclusive. Number three, Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now, the law that Paul has in mind here is primarily the Mosaic law. Now, what Paul is saying, uh, how do we, do we dishonor the law by saying that a man is not saved by the law, he's saved by faith? That would tend, someone might say, to dishonor the law. Not at all. How do we honor the law? How was the law established by this method of justifying men apart from the works of the law, but rather through faith in Christ? How is the law established by this method of saving men? Well, you establish or honor the law in one, two ways. You're going to get out in your car, drive home tonight. Let's say you had to drive up to, um, let's say you had to drive up to Nashville tomorrow. Tomorrow, the law would be honored when you drove up to Nashville in one of two ways. Number one, the law would be established if you observed the speed limit and didn't travel more than 55 miles an hour. The law would be established, would be honored. Secondly, it would be honored if you got up to 65 and the state patrol pulled you aside and gave you a ticket and you paid $20. If that state, if you could argue him out of that, my friend, the law would be dishonored. See? The law would be dishonored. The law is honored either by observing it perfectly or having the penalty executed perfectly. Now, how was the law established in this method of justification? Not by keeping it perfectly. Nobody could keep it perfectly. The law was established and honored in that the full penalty of the law was borne by Jesus Christ. If God had taken, are you listening if God had taken us into heaven the way most people think God takes us into heaven, that is by overlooking sin and by not dealing with sin and by acting toward us as a kindly grandfather acts toward us and overlook sin and forget it and take us into heaven, that would compromise God's holiness. That would be a reflection on the justice of God. God has saved us in a manner by he, which he can be both just and the justify of him that believes in Jesus. God has so worked out the plan of salvation through the vicarious death of Jesus that God is first both just, the full penalty was executed, Jesus born, and secondly, at the same time, he could love us, save us, bring us to heaven. How do we establish the law? How was the law established by this method? By Jesus bearing the full penalty in our stead. Now, the question arises. The question is now going to arise. And Paul, no doubt, was faced this question dozens of times wherever he entered a synagogue and preached the gospel to the Jews. The question arose is this. All this is something new. 
This is something new. We can't, we can't buy what you're preaching. This is something new. Because in the Old Testament, Paul, uh, men were justified by keeping the law and by circumcision. God gave, God gave the law to Moses. God gave circumcision to Abraham. So in the Old Testament, men are, sell, uh, are justified purely, purely by believing God, but also by keeping the law and by circumcision. That's called plus religion, see. Believing and something else. Abraham was saved by, by faith in God, yes, but also by being circumcised. Moses, David were saved and justified by faith, yes, Paul, but also by keeping the law. What you're preaching is in disagreement with the Old Testament, therefore we can't accept it. Now that's the objection that Paul is going to answer in Romans chapter 4. And what Paul does is, step number one, to demonstrate that Abraham and David, the father and the first king, that Abraham and David were justified apart from any works whatsoever. Second step, that Abraham was justified long before he was circumcised, or to put it in the 20th century, before he was baptized, so that circumcision cannot add anything. Third, that the promise was given to Abraham on the basis of faith, not on the basis of keeping the law, and fourth, verses 17 to 25, the faith that Abraham exercised in the Lord is the same kind of faith that we exercise today. And therefore, Abraham is the father of all who believe in the Lord. Not the physical father. Not, not as the covenant theologians tell us, not as the spiritual father, but as the typical father. Abraham is the father of the faith clan. The same kind of faith that Abraham exercised in the Lord is the same kind of faith that I exercise in the Lord. Now, that's Paul. what Paul's going to do. The purpose of Paul in Romans chapter 4 is to prove from the Old Testament that the pivotal doctrine, justification by faith, unfolded in Romans chapter 3 is the doctrine of the Old Testament. Now, that's what Paul's going to prove. Can I say that again? Well, I will. The purpose of Paul in Romans chapter 4 is to demonstrate, to prove, to prove that, that justification by faith alone is not only the doctrine of the gospel, it's the doctrine of the Old Testament. That's the purpose of Paul in Romans chapter 4. Paul's <clears throat> purpose is to show the perfect agreement of the Old Testament way of salvation with the New Testament way of salvation. See, that's Paul's method of operation. That's Paul's modus operandi. Who was it that gave us that M.O.? Our Sergeant Friday or whoever it was that taught us about M.O. What is Paul's M.O.? Paul's M.O., modus operandi, is number one, state the doctrine. Number two, prove it from the Old Testament. Now, where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. State the doctrine. 
then prove it from the Old Testament. Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 8. Look here. Romans 1, 18 to 3, chapter 3, verse 8. Paul accused Jew and Gentile of sin. Then in Romans 3, 9 to 20, he goes to the Old Testament to prove it. Now in Romans 3, 21 to 31, he states justification, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now in Romans 4, he goes back to the Old Testament to prove it. Why did Paul do that? Why did Paul? Paul did it because for Paul, as for Jesus, the Bible was the final authority. See? And that's, that's where the debate lies today. The, the deepest question the church always faces is, what is the final seat of authority in religion? At root, that was the issue in the Protestant Reformation. It was, the issue was justification by faith alone, not by the sacraments. Justification by faith uh, alone apart from the sacraments. The priesthood of every believer. But when Martin Luther began to debate with the Roman Catholic representatives of Cardinal X, Martin Luther said, the Bible says, the scriptures say, and Cardinal X said, yes, but the fathers also say. Well, said Martin Luther, the scripture says, yes, yes, said Cardinal X, but the fathers also say. Now, you're not going to play a game of baseball where one team says three out and you're out, and the other team says no, four out and you're out. And one team says you get four strikes, and the other team says no, you get only two strikes and you're out. How many innings are you going to play? How many? None. Before you play the game, you've got to settle on the rule. What is the final seat of authority? That's always the deepest question. And in religion, there are ultimately only three seats of authority. One, the Bible, and the Bible alone. Or secondly, the church. Or third, experience or reason. So I say to a person, what do you believe about the security of the believer? Is a person who genuinely is saved, will that person persevere in his faith? One man says, I say yes. Why? Because the Bible teaches it. The Bible says it. That settles it. But another man will say, yes, but I knew somebody. See, that's experience. And we don't build our doctrine on the basis of experience, but on the doctrine of what the Bible teaches. Today, it's very theories floating around, and even by some evangelical Christians, that the soul can leave the body. The soul can leave the body and go outside the body and be up around the ceiling, watch the doctors and the nurses, see, operate and come back an hour later. And there's a very, uh, very fine medical doctor in Chattanooga, very committed Christian. He's written a book to that thesis. Now, I happen not to believe that. Why? I don't care if you've got a million experiences. People come back and remember something. The question is, what does the Bible say? The Bible says to depart and to be with the Lord. 
absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment a man dies, that moment, Christian is present with the Lord. Now, the issue is, uh, uh, will I settle on what the Bible says? And I suppose with young people, where the, as they say in his, where the rubber hits the road, is the question of marriage. Can a Christian marry a non-Christian? Well, the answer to that is to be found in the Bible, not in experience. What saith the Scripture? Now, that's what Paul's going to do in Romans chapter 4. What saith the He's taught the doctrine. He stated it in Romans 3. Now he's going to prove it. Romans chapter 4. Now, you've got your outline in front of you. You've got the outline in front of you, and let's try to take up the remainder of time, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4. You see the movement A, B, C, D, the movement of the argument. One, Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by works of the law, as was also King David. B, Abraham was justified by faith, not by ceremony, not by circumcision. C, promise the world airship was offered to Abraham by means of faith, not by keeping the law. And fourth, to tie it all up, the same faith that Abraham exercised is the faith that I exercise. the analogy of Abraham's faith. Now let's take up the first eight verses. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our fathers, pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he is something of which to glory, semicolon, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Not what saith experience, or what saith church tradition, but what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of good. To him that works is the reward means pay. The pay is not credited by grace, but of debt. You owe it to him. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness, even as, now here's a second example, even as David also describes the blessedness of the man on whom God credits righteousness apart from work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not credit sin or will not impute sin. Now, you know the key word here is this word impute. This word, without being technical, the Greek word is logizomai, L-O-G-I-Z-O-N-A-I, logizomai, logizomai. It comes up 11 times in Romans 4, but unfortunately it's translated by four different English words. And it uses, it loses something of the punch. See, in verse 3, Abram believed God, and it was logizomai, counted. Verse 4, now to him that uh, works is a reward. Now it's translated by the word reckon there. It's the same word, logizomai. Verse uh, 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not. Same word, logizomai. So it's been translated by three different Greek words. It's exactly the same word. Logizomai means to credit. What happens when you go down and make a deposit in the bank and they credit your account with $1,000? Well, 
Well, with me, $25. See, that's logizomite, the credit and account, the credit. I, you remember, I think I may have touched on it several weeks ago, but you remember over 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that great love chapter, and don't turn there now, don't turn there, because you'll take five minutes to find it, and I shouldn't have even told you where it's found. But over there in that great love chapter, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit writes something very beautifully. The Holy Spirit says about love, that love suffers long, does it behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, thinketh no evil. The word thinketh there is this word logizomai. And what the Holy Spirit is saying is that true love doesn't keep a book of injury, a book of injury, so that every time my wife does something, I don't write it down in an account book, see, logizomai. Now, I'm not trying to be facetious here. Write it down, write it down. Thinketh no evil, doesn't put it down in some sort of a charge account to keep track of it and hold it against that person. And you know, a lot of us walk around with that sort of thing inside us. May not be a wife, may not be a husband, maybe a son, maybe a boss that's abrasive, maybe some church member causes some trouble, maybe some preacher, I don't know. But it gets down inside us, and we, we got a little count book in our computer, and we credit that, so we put it down, credit, and that eats away on us on the inside. That's what he means, love thinks no evil. Love doesn't keep any book of revenge, thinks no evil. Now, that's the word Paul uses here, logizomai. Now, Paul selects two men here, Abraham and David. Paul's stated justification by faith. Now, Paul takes the two of the greatest men in the Old Testament. The first one is the father of the Israelite nation. Who's that? Abraham. Do you know that three great parties looked at Abraham? The Jew, the Arab, and the Christian, all three. And the Jew of all of them looked to Abraham. He was the F-O-U-N-T, the found of the Israelite nation. They came from Abraham. They called him Abraham our father. How was he saved? Paul's argument, Genesis 15, 6, he was justified by faith, without works, and 17 years before he was circumcised. That was devastating. Neither works nor circumcision could help a man to be saved. He was devastated. Then he chose the second man. Who was that? The first king, David. How was he saved? Exactly the same way. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes righteousness. Now, look at these two. First of all, there's a question. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What do we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, is found. Now, that probably ought to read this way. What should we say then? That Abraham, our father, has found as pertaining to the flesh. That phrase, as pertaining to the flesh, goes with the verb has found not our doesn't go with our father that's obvious goes with the verb 
Now, according to the flesh, that word flesh there doesn't mean this stuff, fingers. The word flesh, as I've, I've gone over this before, the word flesh is used in different ways. Sometimes the word flesh is used in the sense of this stuff, fingers and toes. So Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, spirit has not flesh, bones, as you see. Now, flesh there means this stuff, this stuff, this stuff on my, that's on the outside side of my bone see that's flesh sometimes the word flesh means simply human nature and the word became flesh what does that mean that means that Jesus took on a real human nature including a real body and a true soul or body soul and spirit if you're a trichotomy he took on whatever belongs to a real human being. Sometimes the word flesh means sinful human nature. Romans 8 and 7, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that can't be this stuff, because it's this stuff. Jesus was in this stuff, but he pleased God. See, so that couldn't be that. That word, in the, they that are in the flesh means they that are in sinful nature. Now when Paul says, what did Abraham, our father, obtain? Word by means get. What did he get? What did he obtain by his own human nature, by his own effort, by his moral achievement, by his religious achievement? What did Abraham obtain by the effort of his human nature? See, that's what it means. What did he get? By his own human effort. What did Abraham acquire? By his own moral achievement and works. How was he saved? All right, verse 2. Here's the reason why he asked this. For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something of which to boast. Period. Period. He has something of which to boast. Period. To be, you know, if a, uh, uh, if a man... Uh, if a man achieves something, he can boast in it. I last, uh, I don't know when it was, a few weeks ago I saw um, on television a, um, one of these news stories that told the story of the rise of a very poor man. And he's now a multi-millionaire. He's built two fortunes. And the news, I didn't say it, but the commentator said, the man tends to be boastful. He's not slow in letting you know what he's achieved. He built two empires by hard, diligent work study. He worked eight hours a day. He worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Built two empires, multi-millionaire, sold one of them. And now he can boast in it. He achieved something. See. But if a man is, is, instead of a man being swimming across the river, He's carried by someone else across the river. Instead of a man climbing a mountain, he's strapped on the back of another man and carried across the mountain. He doesn't have anything of which to boast. And that's the point that Paul is making in verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by his whole human effort, then he has a ground on which he could boast. If Abram did something, he did something. If he kept nine of the Ten Commands, 
had something with Sibold. If he lived a good life, if his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds, then he had something of which to boast. That's why I raise the question, says Paul. How did Abraham, what did he acquire by his own human effort? Now, he answers it in the last part of verse 2. But because there's um, what's called an ellipsis, some of the words are left out. Some, and we do this all the time. Uh, we say, you know, we're talking about um, I'm, we're talking about going downtown. Uh, when are you going downtown? Well, maybe this afternoon, noon, this, or maybe this morning. Uh, what are you going to do downtown? Well, I'm going to buy this or thus, so-and-so. Then as I go out the door, I say, I'm going. I'm going. That's all I say. But the person, if I'm saying it to my wife, uh, I'm saying it to my wife, I'm going because of our past conversation. She knows what I mean. She knows that when I say I'm going, I mean I'm going to town. I don't put the words in. Now, there's some words that Paul didn't put in because he assumed that we could put them in. Now, let me look at that last statement. What Paul says in that last statement is, but, but not before God. And what he says by that means that he had, but he had nothing to boast of before God. But not before God means, but he had nothing to boast of before God. What did Abraham acquire by human effort? Nothing. Why? Because he couldn't boast. He had nothing to boast of before God. Why? Well, look at verse 3. The proof is given in verse 3. For, F-O-R, for what saith the scripture? Abraham kept the Ten Commandments. Is that what it says? Abraham lived a good moral life. Is that what it says? What does it say? Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Why? Why did Abraham acquire? Nothing. Why? Well, because, because believing and working are contradictory opposites. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Romans chapter 11, verse 5. Romans 11.5, even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. For if by grace, then it can't be by works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it's by works, then it cannot be what? By grace. They're absolute opposites. Now, instead of the word grace, you could have just as well put the word faith in there. Faith and works are absolute opposites. Look here. Is there any middle ground between being dead and alive? No. We say a person is half dead, don't we? We say he's half dead. I look out here. Some of you look a little half dead. See? <clears throat> but there isn't. You know, there, when you get down to it, there's no middle ground. A person's either dead or alive. There's no middle ground between being dead or alive. No such thing as half dead. That's just a euphemism you, we use. A person's either dead or alive. What about pregnancy? Half pregnancy? No, and I'm not being facetious. No, there's either pregnancy or no pregnancy. Now, there's no halfway ground between works 
and believing. If I work, then I don't believe. If I believe, there's no room for work. Now Paul says, how was Abraham justified? Was he justified by work? Was he justified by faith plus work? Or was he justified by faith? Well, what Paul does is he goes on back to Genesis chapter 15 and he picks up for him the Bible, the Old Testament's final authority. He picks up Genesis 15, verse 6, and he quotes it. Quotes it. And he says, quoting it, Abraham believed God. Believed God. Not believed and kept the Ten Commandments. Not believed and tried to live a good Christian life. Abraham believed God. When he did that, then it was imputed to him for righteousness. He was saved. Now, that's over Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Let's go back over there and look at that statement. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Because I can see that some of you aren't familiar with that passage. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter 15. Let's begin at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, exceeding great reward. Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. You see, God had promised Abram a seed. What did God promise Abram in Genesis 12? In thy seed shall all the world be blessed a Savior. So in order for that Savior to come, Abraham must have a child by Sarah, not by Hagar, by Sarah. Abram tried to have it by Hagar. That didn't work out. Abram said, how about this Eliezer? He's my servant. And it was a custom in those days, if a man or woman had no child, the eldest servant became the heir. That's found in the Newsy tablet. That was common. So what Abraham was proposing was common to the culture that day. God said, no, no, no. Verse 3, Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, no child. Lo, one born in my house, Eliezer's mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he shall come forth out of your own loins shall be thine heir. And he brought Abram forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So shall thy seed be, including that vast number and the seed in whom all the world would be blessed. Verse 6, what does it say? And Abraham was baptized, circumcised. What did Abraham do? Believe in the Lord, and he counted him for righteousness. Now, once you look up here, we'll have to close at this point. Somebody, at, and I'd like oh, everybody to be quiet now. Don't shuffle the papers. See, and, um, let's see it. Why uh, the question's asked, and I used to wrestle with this question. Was Abram not saved until this point, Genesis 15? God came to Abram down in Ur of the Chaldees. 
way down near the Persian Gulf. Abram was a pagan, worshipped idols, Joshua 24. God said, leave Ur, and he left it. Went up to Haran. God said, leave Haran. He left it. Came on down to Canaan. God said, put aside Lot, separate from Lot. He did so. Uh, was not Abram saved when he was justified down there in, in Ur or up here at Haran? Why does God pick this one? This one. Not the other two. This one. To say Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Why? Are you listening? Because in this one, Abraham did nothing else but believe. When God said to Abram, who was an idolater, a pagan down on earth, and he was 60 years of age, Abram, get up, trust me, get up, leave her, go to the place where I'll show you. Abraham believed God, but also he left Ur. He did something. When he got up to, up to Haran, God said, Genesis 12, leave Haran, leave it now. You've been here 15 years. Leave it. Go down to Canaan. There's where I'm going to bless you. Abraham believed God and also left Herod. Later on, Genesis 13, God said, separate from Lot. So Abram believed God, but he also separated from Lot. Later on in Genesis 22, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And Romans 4 tells us that he did it believing Hebrews also that God would raise him from the dead, that if he had to slay him, God had promised, out of Isaac will come the seed that will bless the world, Jesus. So Abram believed God, if he, if he had to go through and put him to death, that God would raise him. But Abram believed God and did something. He took Isaac. But my friend, at this point, look up here. Look at those stars. So shall thy seed be. I'm going to send the Savior, Genesis 12, 3. And out of the Savior will come a great seed, and all men will be blessed. And Abraham believed God and did nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else. That's why God chose this incident, not another one. Maybe he was saved back there. I'm not sure. Maybe he was. But this is the place where God puts his finger, because this is the place that Abraham believed God and did nothing else. And through sheer naked faith in the Lord, plus nothing, plus nothing, Abraham was justified. How was he justified? By God's grace on the ground of the coming Savior through faith in the Lord. How, how, how am I saved and justified in the 20th century? How? By God's grace on the ground of the blood of Christ through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great heresy in America is faith plus. See? Faith plus. This is the Bible belt down here. This is the Bible belt. You ask a man down the main street or out on White Station Road, are you planning to go to heaven? Yes. Yeah. Sure don't want to go to hell. 
You, you Christian, oh, I believe so. How do you know? Well, well, I trusted Jesus, and I'm trying to live a good Christian life. That's faith plus. That's heresy. He asked another man, are you, yes, how do you know? Well, I trusted Jesus, and I was baptized. That's faith plus. I trusted Jesus, and I'm trying to serve the Lord. Well, that doesn't say serving the Lord is fine. That demonstrates the reality. But I'm not saved and justified by serving the Lord. I'm saved by faith alone in Christ. Serving the Lord, change of life, good works, demonstrates the reality of that. How's a man saved? By faith alone. You say, why did God order it that way? So nobody could boast. See? Nobody. Nobody could boast. The man that's lived the purest and most moral life can't boast at all. He's just the same as the man that's committed every sin in the book. See? Now, that doesn't mean that God approves of men committing sin in an unsaved state. No, it doesn't. Because they'll reap the harvest of that. It doesn't mean that. It means that God takes nothing from me. I come with empty hands. Most of us sing in America, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. A lot of people sing it. With good works I come. Nothing in my, something in my hands I bring. To my good works I still will cling. No. Man is saved. By faith alone. I, I imagine every once in a while I pick up a something and I read that illustration. Man getting to heaven. How's he getting to heaven? Well, it's like rowing across the river. Rowing across the river. One oar is painted faith. The other oar is painted work. And I'm rowing my way to heaven. That's a terrible illustration. How's the man saved? By God's grace, on the ground of the blood of Christ, through faith. What is faith? Well, faith, my friend, is simply that act of the whole man, the intellect, the emotions, and the will by which I commit myself to Jesus Christ. I'm lost. I'm bankrupt. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I cannot save myself. One day I recognize my bankruptcy and my hopelessness and helplessness, and I cast myself, I cast myself upon Jesus Christ to save me and to bring me to heaven. The old Puritans spoke of faith as this, recumbency, leaning with one's whole weight upon Christ. And that's what saving faith is. Now the question I ask in closing, have you done that? Have you done that? Not if you joined the church. Not if you've been baptized. You ought to go through those. You're a Christian. You ought to be in fellowship with the church. You ought to be baptized. But that's not the issue. The issue is Christ. Have you trusted him? Have you committed yourself to Jesus Christ to save your sins? Abraham believed God, period. And it was credited him for righteousness. Father, we thank thee for the simplicity of the plan of salvation. Had thou said to us, 
that a man is saved by faith plus living a pure life, most of us would never make it. If thou didst say that thy men are saved by faith plus achieving something in life, many of us would never be saved by it. But we thank thee, our Father, that Jesus Christ bore it all. And when, when we come to thee, O God, we come to thee with empty hands, helpless, hopeless. What a devastating blow this is to man's pride. And that's why we rejected thee so long. It was a devastating blow to our pride. We work to rise on the ladder of success. We work hard, we achieve, we're rewarded. But that's not the way it is with salvation. We come to thee bankrupt, helpless, hopeless, undone, lost and doomed sinners. And we cast ourselves upon the Savior and he saves. So the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And we pray tonight, O oh God, that if there's somebody here, we can't help but think that in this audience tonight there, there, there could be somebody who is resting upon his or her good works or church membership or good life, and life may be good, resting upon these and not upon Christ. We pray that tonight, right now, that person may cast himself or herself upon the Savior, trust in the Savior. We know that when we trust the Savior, he does his job, he saves us, and he keeps us, and he cleanses us, and he changes us, makes us new men and women, brings us one day to heaven. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.